Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. If the Senate confirms Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, we will have the most diverse Supreme Court in U.S. history. University of Tennessee law professor Benjamin Barton, author of The Credentialed Court, argues that while this is true on the surface, a closer look suggests a radical similarity among the justices, especially when considering their educational and career paths. He has spent the past 12 years studying the backgrounds of every Supreme Court justice in history and says that the justices today follow more prescribed legal paths than their predecessors, which favors technical legal excellence over practical wisdom. Benjamin Barton, with the backdrop of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson's nomination hearings, we wanted to talk to you about your new book, which is your fifth, The Credentialed Court. Uh, This is really not just a book, it's a 12-year research project. So tell me about it. Yeah, so um, it's an empirical study. That's where it started way back uh, in 2011. And I looked at the backgrounds of Supreme Court justices, every justice starting with the first, John Jay, and going all the way to Amy Coney Barrett. Um, And first, it's just a really fun project. Like, this is an amazing, amazing group of Americans, as you can guess. Um, But second, part of the point was to ask whether the backgrounds that people are bringing to the court has changed over time. And it turns out that they really have changed quite a bit. You came to the conclusion that over the last couple of decades, uh, the court nominees have, this is your term, radical similarity. What does that mean? Um, well, basically, uh, we the presidents have always sought to appoint the best people to the Supreme Court. We've always had some version of meritocracy. But in the recent decades, we've settled on a, a single version of merit. Um, so if Judge Jackson were to join the court, seven of the nine justices would have gone to an Ivy League undergraduate institution. Eight of the nine justices would have gone to just Harvard or Yale law schools. Six of the nine justices would have clerked on the Supreme Court, including in a very sort of uh, inbred way. Three of them will have replaced the justice that they clerked for. Um, And again, getting a clerkship on the Supreme Court is the hardest job to get after law school. Um, And then they have a bunch of similarities professionally after that. Uh, There's a cluster of people who worked at law firms in D.C. or worked at the White House or worked at the Solicitor General's office. It's this sort of hyper elite, highly credentialed group of folks. Um, And it's hard to find people who have lived more similar lives from 18 forward than these people, despite their political dissimilarity, like uh, Justice Alito and Justice Sotomayor. Uh, share so much in common. They both went to Princeton, then they both went to Yale for law school, um, then they both worked as prosecutors. Uh, The the similarities for their lives and the things that they've done are just amazing for people who have such dissimilar views. Leading into the confirmation hearings, the White House Chief of Staff, Ron Klain, put a tweet out with a graphic representation of the backgrounds. Uh, His intention was to support the nominee and on the merit-based system. But it actually illustrates your point by showing the, the backgrounds and careers of all the existing justices compared with their nominee. But why shouldn't the Supreme Court have a merit-based system? Oh, so I, I'm not anti-merit. It's just how you want to define merit. But you should just have a much broader version of merit. Um, it's a, we have a small decision-making body. You have nine people who are going to be on it. And they're already all going to be lawyers. So you have a significant worry about groupthink on that sort of decision-making body. So it's critical, critical that you have diverse diversity in terms of life experience. And let, let me just be clear, 
Uh, we're going to have with Judge Jackson the most diverse Supreme Court ever in terms of race and gender. And that's salutary, and I am not against that at all. I'm thrilled that that's the situation. Um, if you if you care to, there's a hilarious YouTube video that has every picture of the court put in order. And the first time you get Thurgood Marshall on the court, you'll gasp. I mean, you've looked at 150 years of white guys just staring back at you. So I'm very, very, very happy to have um, have that change. That's great. That's more reflective of the country. That being said, broader diversity also matters. Um, and having these folks having had the same educational background, similar geographic background, similar professional background as lawyers, um, all of them coming from Court of Appeals, Federal Court of Appeals judges, is really a significant loss. David Leonhardt has a column on this topic in the New York Times this week, and the headline is Katanji Brown-Jackson is both similar to and different from the justices she would be joining, and not because only because of her race and gender, and that is because of her time serving uh, as a federal public defender. So does she bring a bit of different experience to the court than what your studies have shown? Oh, for sure. Uh, well, so first, I mean, she would be the first like full-time federal public defender. She's not the first criminal defense lawyer who's going to be on the court. Thurgood Marshall uh, famously was America's leading civil rights lawyer and probably the greatest civil rights lawyer ever, but was also a decorated criminal defense lawyer. He barnstormed all over the country, taking some of the hardest cases that he possibly could. Um, and then if you go back way back to the 19th century, almost all of the justices who joined the court were solo practitioners. Um, and solo practitioners took what came in the door. Uh, you know that Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr famously had murder cases, but that was super typical of lawyers of their time. So John Marshall and others from back in the day had a significant amount of criminal defense experience. So beyond uh, similar career paths and education, there is a factor that you write about, and that is their childhood and upbringing. Justice Thomas uh, grew up in poverty in Pinpoint, Georgia. Justice Sotomayor, she had an alcoholic father who died when she was nine, grew up in a housing pro project in the Bronx. And here is Judge Jackson uh, talking about her family experiences and how it has informed her life. You may have read that I have one uncle who got caught up in the drug trade and received a life sentence. That is true. But law enforcement also runs in my family. In addition to my brother, I had two uncles who served decades as police officers, one of whom became the police chief in my hometown of Miami, Florida. Benjamin Barton, the nominees have all typically commented about their family experiences as they go through the confirmation process. How do you factor that into the, the work that you've been doing on their similar paths once they enter college? Oh, yeah. So we keep track. I mean, one of the things that the book talks about is this childhood background, like what level of poverty that you lived in and also the setting for it. And that has also gotten to be I mean, the, the, the background childhood background thing has gotten medium diverse. And and Thomas and Sotomayor are a great example of it. I think there's 11 different Supreme Court justices that have been coded, meaning we chose them as like the, the absolute poorest people who make it on the court. And as you can imagine, each one of them is just an amazing story. Um, I mean, Thomas' story is incredible. Uh, as, a, as a young person, he grew up in Pinpoint speaking Gullah as his first language, which is like Creole, former slave language. Um, and then English is the second language. It wasn't until he moved into Savannah to attend Catholic school that he really like, like found his way in that regard. So we do keep track of that. Um, the, the 
change here is that we just have a lot of people from urban areas um, on the court now, and that's unusual for the court as well. You used to have a much better blend of people from rural areas, farm areas. Um, now it's all a lot of people from urban areas. And then there's a particular concentration of people from the Acela corridor, basically, who have lived in the New York metropolitan area or the D.C. metropolitan area or somewhere in between those. All of the nominees in their in their confirmation hearings underline the fact that their job is not to have anything but an impartial view of the law. Uh, the chief justice famously, I call balls and strikes. Uh, we hear that uh, the phrase blind justice and the like. So ultimately, if if they are are neutral arbiters of the law, why does background matter? Yeah, so people, this is a great question. I love this. Um, people will ask me, well, is the court more conservative because of this and more liberal because of this? Like, does it actually change the votes? And I think that's really hard to establish that it's actually it's a deeper issue, in my opinion, um, in the following way. So we have, in some ways, the most credential court we've ever had, or if that's your version of merit, the greatest court we've ever had. But we have nine folks who have very similar trainings and skill sets. And in my opinion, it's like a basketball team where all anybody can do is shoot threes. And as soon as they get the ball, they want to shoot. Uh, we, when you have this, this sort of thing, what you end up with is in contested cases, you have more separate dissents, more separate concurrences. The opinions are longer. The opinions are more technical. The opinions have more citations. The opinions have more multi-part tests. And um, the, why is that? Because we're sorting for technical legal excellence. That's what we're looking for when you choose these hoops as the hoops that you have to jump through. And so when you have nine justices who share that in common, that's what they're going to push out. Um, and especially given the things that we ask our Supreme Court to decide, uh, many of these things are frankly not legal issues. Um, gay marriage is a perfect example of that. Um, you can dress it up as a legal issue if you care to. But I think most Americans, when they look at that, would say, well, that's that's at least as much a policy issue as it is a legal issue. So having technical legal experts pile on on top of that, in my opinion, is not helpful. A mix of people with broader life experiences, I think, would do a better job of addressing those sorts of questions. We've got lots more time to dig into this, and, and your readers will not only get the results of your study, but also some interesting biographies of people who have served on the Supreme Court in the past. And we get a chance to talk about some of those. But before, a little bit about you. How, what was your path to the law? Oh, I love this. It's a personal question. This makes me super happy. Oh, and also I meant to say, I'm so thrilled to be on the show. Like, I'm a book geek and an author, and so I love your show. This is a bucket list item for me. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I graduated college, and I spent a couple of years working, just trying to find my way in the world, including driving a school bus. And I decided that driving a school bus was too hard. That was not for me. Uh, so I found my way into law school um, and then eventually found my way into teaching. And for 12 years, I was a clinical law professor. So I represented the indigent in court and the students did the work and I oversaw it. Um, and now I teach torts and contracts. Um, and so it's, it's, it's been pretty fun for me. And in particular, when you spend a lot of time in courts with poor people, you get to see a different part of the justice system and then when, you, when you're familiar with that part of the justice system and you think about the Supreme Court, and these folks, have, most of them have never been in court. And if they have been in court, it's as a prosecutor or now as a, as a public defender. Um, you just don't get a lot of, like, uh, uh, you don't get a lot of experience what the justice system actually does. Um, so, for example, the vast majority of people end up in state court, not 
in federal court. And we haven't had a former state court judge on the court since Justice Souter. Um, we used to have politicians on the court, and now Sandra Day O'Connor was the last person with political experience, elected political experience on the court. And all of these things are, are losses to us because these are, um, they don't have a lot of experience with ordinary people sort of out and about. I have a left field question for you because on your biography, on your book jacket, it says that you taught law as a Fulbright scholar in Slovenia. With that experience, how are you viewing events in the Ukraine right now? Oh, so um, first, that was an amazing experience, and I strongly recommend the Fulbright program. It was great. I, I learned so much about that country and spent so much time with folks in that country. Um, and yes, it's really close to Ukraine. But even more than that, we were there in 1415, as you said, and my wife and my do- my wife taught at and my daughters attended an American school. And the American school was a real international mix, um, including multiple families from Ukraine who had left after the um, after the initial invasion uh, under Obama and who were like, oh, it's just it's, they were just terrified. They were like, we're not going back. Russia's coming back. And so to see it happen now, um, and my daughters are still in touch with some of their classmates from Ukraine. So it's very, very upsetting for us. Let's return to your study of the Supreme Court and your theory that the Supreme Court today is uh, evidence of radical similarity with similar backgrounds in law schools and uh, education and uh, court experience before uh, they're joining the court. So when in our history did judges' backgrounds begin to converge if they were dissimilar for much of our history? Yeah, so I think um, you can, it's actually, you can trace it to the confirmation hearings and when the confirmation hearings started to get really, really toxic. Um, And so basically, sort of late 60s, um, under Nixon, you had several different confirmation battles that got kind of ugly. Um, And then from there forward, you had presidents uh, instead of confirmation being sort of a pro forma thing, they got to be quite nervous about it. And because they were nervous about it, they felt one thing they could do is just take qualifications off the table. So if everyone had the best qualifications, then surely that would make at least that part of the confirmation process a lot easier. I think that's part of it. Um, and I think part of it's also generally in America, we seem to have sort of settled unwittingly on this version of meritocracy where, um, sorting out for Ivy League education and at law school or just generally has become a key qualification. When did, and, and, um, sorry, when did American Bar Association ratings come into the mix? It's an outstanding question. I think that's in the 40s and 50s. Um, I think that's right. But that adds, uh, but adds to the credential culture, I would imagine. It does, absolutely. It does, absolutely. Um, and that was one of the things um, Harriet Myers famously was floated under George W. Bush, and there was a concern that she would not get a highly qualified um, rating. So, yeah. When you uh, undertook this study, did you overlay the kinds of course cases that the court took? And is there a cause and effect that you can actually trace with that? That's an outstanding question. I love that question. It's really, really hard um, because the types of cases, you know, this is, it, it, that's, a, that's a hard empirical thing to measure and prove. Um, and also you can get a type of case that's a family law case, and that case can be either a gay marriage case or just a, a regular, you know, sort of due process in a divorce case. Like there, there's a wide range within that. Here's what I'll say about that. 
it is for sure bar none true that the Supreme Court has risen and fallen in terms of public notice and salience. And so you think about the uh, the time under FDR, at that point, the Supreme Court was super, super controversial and very, very noticeable, so much that FDR was, was planning to possibly pack the court. Then after FDR, you have a long period where it kind of goes into a valley before you get back to the Warren Court. And so we have these stretches, and this is historically, where the court will sort of fade from view. And then you'll have confirmation processes that are really easy, and you can tell that the presidents aren't spending quite as much time trying to figure out who's going to be on the court. And then you'll have these periods where it rises in salience, and all of a sudden it becomes a political hot potato again. And we have been living through that for years, for 60 years, basically. From the Warren Court forward, I would say it's really, really, really become a much more salient thing. Um, so then your original question, though, is like, what's the connection between the cases that they take? As the court raises, rises in political salience, all of a sudden, then the backgrounds and the, and the confirmation just becomes much more important. And we are in a period where the court has continued to take hot button issues from the mid 60s all the way through to now. If partisanship and the confirmation part uh, process is one of the driving forces for more and more elite nom- uh, lawyer nominations, why do the, uh, the why is the process so acrimonious then? Oh, I think part of it's just I mean, first, we live in an acrimonious time of great divisiveness. That's that, that's not the fault of the Supreme Court. Um, but second, as the Supreme Court takes on more and more sort of politically charged issues, it just becomes really, really important. It's not an elected body. You're not in control of when people leave it or join it. Um, and it, insofar as it's really, really important to uh, the majority of Americans, they're going to care about it a lot. So when you have these confirmation hearings come up, this is an opportunity to really, really um, double down on it. And also in an acrimonious time, and, and you're seeing this now with Judge Jackson for sure. Um, but just to be frank, I thought you saw it with Amy Coney Barrett and uh, with previous nominees. This is a bipartisan issue. The confirmation process now is a great chance to grandstand. And it's a great chance to make political points, um, almost regardless of who the nominee is. And that's an unfortunate byproduct of sort of the, the TV era and where we are. I guess really the Twitter era also. Um, but yeah. One of the other motivations that you write about in your book is for presidents when they choose these elite lawyers uh, is to counter ideological drift because they know more about their background. They know more about the cases they've seen in the federal courts. But we still see that there are drifts once people get on the courts. So how do you square that circle? Oh, so I think that presidents think that that's what they're doing, but that's not what they're doing, um, because there just is no way to completely lock that in. Um, yeah. So one of the reasons why most justices now come from a federal court of appeals background is because then they at least have some record that you can look to. Uh, a lot of recent justices, way more than historically, have been former law professors, and law professors are like that, too. They, they've written down with their outside voices what they think should happen, and so you at least have that uh, that to rely on. All of that being said, I mean, there's a lot that people accuse uh, Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, of drift. Um, and if you look at a person who's got a long demonstrated record of what he thinks, um, he's the perfect candidate for it. So if, if, if he's pot- potentially a drifter, then there's really like, in my opinion, that's a fool's errand. Um, it's not a good reason to keep choosing people from the same background. 
Tell me a little bit more about when you began to uh, to think about this in a more substantial way. You referenced the the association between the cases your students were working on and, and ultimately the Supreme Court's involvement. But th- that's not just correlation. Uh, you really went into a deep dive on research. What what propelled you to do that? Yeah, so there, I mean, basically, the thing that was really fun about this was people were like, oh, the, the Supreme Court justices' backgrounds have changed a lot. And it was sort of anecdotal what they were saying. And I was like, well, that's, a, that's an empirical question. Like, that could actually be measured. Um, and then when I started started measuring it, I was like, that's a, that's a really fun empirical question. <laughs> like, this involves me going back and reading a, a, a biography or a thumbnail sketch of the biography of every single Supreme Court justice, which that alone was just a fantastic project. Um, and so as soon as I started doing it, I was like, oh, this is this is like life's work. Like, this is just amazing. I'm really, really enjoying it. Um, and then it actually, it was one of those things where it's an empirical question. It turns out the answer is what you think it is with an exclamation point. Like it was so much different and worse, uh, worse from my point of view than I thought it was going to be. There's just so many people who used to make it on the court who would never make it on the court now. Besides just researching the biographies, one of the, the parts that was sort of fun to read is that you enlisted the aid of an, a laboratory uh, in, in your university to actually put data uh, into the system. So tell me about that aspect of the project. Yeah, so so it's, it's actually pretty easy to establish empirically that things have changed because you can just count it. Like these are the number of people who used to be politicians. Now there aren't any politicians. These are the number that used to be state court judges. Now there aren't any state court judges. These are the number of people who basically cut their teeth being lawyers and now they're not on the court anymore. It's a different question whether diversity has changed, meaning like the overall mix of people on the court has changed. And that's actually a little bit harder to measure. Um, And so, and then it turned out that there's not a universally accepted measure for human diversity. Uh, There's eyeball diversity. So for example, it's really easy to say that that when Judge Jackson, if Judge Jackson joins the court, it will be the most diverse court ever. And that's an eyeball test. You can just look at it and see that that's the case. Uh, but this broader question about experiential diversity is actually kind of hard. So I was searching around for a measure for diversity that would capture this, and I settled on biodiversity. And it turned out that there's a biodiversity lab here at the University of Tennessee, and I co-wrote one of the studies with a graduate student there. And so basically, when you look at a, a, a biome, you want to ask yourself, how diverse is the biome? And humorously, they have a similar thing. You could just do an eyeball test and be like, what do the trees look like? Um, But that is not sufficient for those purposes. So then you actually figure out each genus within it and then the number of different animals within each genus. And there's a math um, calculus that goes along with it. And so we worked together on that so we could measure diversity across the entire history of the Supreme Court. What was the lab uh, instructor, the person in charge of the lab, with their reaction when you came with the, this idea? Has uh, uh, Professor Barton gone off the wall with his interest in the Supreme Court, or did it seem logical to, to them? Oh, as soon as, like, the funny thing is that as soon as I explained that there were nine seats and that there were, like, we would measure where they grew up and what their, how much money their parents had and where they went to college, they were like, oh, Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> like they immediately translated to the Amazon forest and diversity within that. Like it was not, um, they're math people. And so it's, it's just a matter of labels for them. So yeah, no, I think they were excited about it. Then when we got into the weeds of it, I mean, you can imagine it's not easy. And so for example, when you're measuring um, employment diversity, what the people did, well, 
they've done a lot of things. And so you can't really just say, um, like, so for a person like Earl Warren, Earl Warren was a prosecutor and he was also the governor of California and he was the Republican vice presidential candidate all before he got onto the court. Well, do you count him as a prosecutor? Or do you count him as a governor? Um, so you, we had to f find fractions for all of this. That part of it got a little bit more frustrating for my biologist friends. And one of the things that she said, which I thought was amazing, she said, I'm very confused by this. You cannot be one eighth tiger and one eighth monkey. And I was like, well, for jobs, you can. I promise. <laughs> That's an actual thing. So uh, your publisher, Encounter Books, is known for publishing conservative titles. Is this a conservative issue at all? So I actually think that this is a bipartisan issue. Um, the Trump nominees weirdly look a lot in terms of background like the Obama nominees. And Judge Jackson weirdly looks a lot like the Trump nominees. We have, uh, in a time, a very, very divided time, we have unwittedly just sort of settled on this as a bipartisan qualifications race. Um, so I don't experience it as a, as a conservative liberal issue. Um, what do you think the impact on society overall is? Yeah, I think the impact on society is very similar to what I described to the impact on the court. Um, so when we settle on this particular version of meritocracy, I think you're just much, much, much more likely to get into narrow expert groups of experts who share a lot in common making decisions. Um, and I'm, a, I'm not a fan of that. Like, I just think that that's bad overall. It's a lot easier for me to talk about the Supreme Court because I, I know more about that. Um, but I think that we, you, we're in a situation where if, you're, if your version of the best is going to involve all of these ever-narrowing hoops over a course of a life where all of the people who are making decisions have these same experiences, you're going to end up in groupthink situations um, where nine-tenths of the decision is made before they ever discuss it. If you have a mix of experiences and a mix of expertise, especially on small decision-making bodies, you get much more robust discussion. You get much more open discussion. You have people who are willing to say, wait, why do we do that? Um, on the current Supreme Court, you'll get people who not only do they know why, they know the history of why, they know all the precedents of why, they know the full web of it. There's very little chance, in my opinion, for those folks to go backwards and ask the bigger questions and the rethinking questions. And in my opinion, if you look at the work that's coming out of that court, it desperately needs that. It desperately needs an outside look at it and a new start. Your book uh, describes your studies of the justices in two parts, biographies and the years studies. The year studies, I presume, is the, the um, numeric calculations that you just talked about. That yeah, it's super fun. It's yeah. actually the years that justices spent doing things. So I've got a geographic part. How many years did they live in various parts of the country? I've got an educational part. How many years did they spend in law school or in undergrad? Um, and then years doing various jobs, those sorts of things. So let's dig in a little more on the biographies. First of all, when did the court first meet? We get history in your book. So tell us a little of its history. Yeah, so John Jay is the first chief justice, and the, I, I, you're asking me to call out a year off the top of my head. I think maybe it's 1789. 1790. Uh, but yeah, they had, you report 1790, so let me okay, fill great. that in for no, you. No, no, that's fine. Yeah, that's, see, look at this. I was close. Yeah, um, 1790. Um, and and the how, first large, time they made, how large was it at the time? Yeah, so the court had six seats on it at the time. I'm pretty sure the first time they sat, there were five justices who were there. Um, and they basically had no business for the first couple of years. Uh, the bulk of their work was what we called riding circuit, uh, which is where they went out in the country, often in carriage and horseback, 
Um, and in the Southern Circuit on terrible, terrible roads, there's some hilarious stories of the justices, uh, you know, facing washed out bridges, having to take a canoe down river to get to Savannah, Georgia, to hear cases, um, having wandered through a swamp because the roads were so bad. Oh, and then there's also the great stories of the rascally public houses that they had to stay at during that time. But you make the point that this is the time at which the Supreme Court was never more connected to the public because of riding circuit. Why did it end? Oh, the justices hated it. From the very first time that John Jay had to get on a horse and ride off, he was like, well, this isn't for me at all. They hated it and they lobbied against it. But it lasted for 100 years. Um, And it wasn't by mistake. The the Congress knew that the justices hate it, and they insisted that they keep going out and doing it. There's an amazing anecdote that I learned that I put in the book that the first time they headed out to the ride circuit, George Washington actually wrote each justice, and he asked them, he said, you're going to be out amongst the people. Report back to me what you learn. You're you're the forward-facing people for this government. You're going to be the first people from the federal government that that run across people in South Carolina and North Carolina and New York and Massachusetts. Please tell me what's happening out there. And just pause for a second to think that in in the original framers' vision, the Supreme Court knew more about what was going on out in the public than the elected people because they were out there riding and and consider just the radical change in that now, Um, how much more cloistered and how much more interior they are. What value is it to look at George Washington's appointees to the court now, other than just as a note of history, considering how much not only the court has changed, but how much the country has changed? Yeah. So in this actually, I mean, a part of this, like if you're an originalist, um, then you should really, really care about it. But I think if you're just generally interested in it, you should care about it. And here's what I mean. Um, the Constitution itself is very short. I mean, Article 3 and what it has to say about the Supreme Court. It just has a couple of sentences and doesn't really say much about what they thought it was going to be or how they thought it was going to operate or even who was going to be on it. I mean, it would be constitutional to put a non-lawyer on the Supreme Court. If there's nothing on there that says even that they have to be lawyers. Um, so under those circumstances, I think it's worth thinking about, you know, at least in the original design, who are we hoping would take these jobs? Who is it we're hoping would staff them? And looking at the Washington appointees, and I've got two chapters where I go through all 10 of his Supreme Court justices, I think is really, really, really interesting. Uh, First, Washington was really in the geographic diversity. He chose the best lawyer, basically, in each state all the way through, uh, I guess it's Delaware and Rhode Island who got stuck. They didn't they didn't get their chance. Um, but every other every other state, he chose somebody who was very cognizant of trying to have each state have a person. Second was the type of person. It was a real mix. I mean, he had former politicians. He had some former judges. He had some all of them were outstanding lawyers. And the bulk of them had spent some time either on their state constitutions or working on the federal constitution. Um, but that was the, that was what he was looking for. He was looking for frequently the best of the best lawyers wise in each state. You have described John Jay, our first chief justice, as a favorite among these early appointees to the court. Why? Oh, he just like his his experience, his life experience is so different and amazing uh, in comparison. Uh, so first, he was a decorated politician, as governor of New York. He was, I code him as the second person, or he was actually the first person to have served as president before he became 
on the Supreme Court. William Howard Taft famously is the second. Um, but Jay was the, the, the chief executive officer under the Articles of the Confederacy. So he serves basically as the president before he got on. He's one of the authors of the Federalist Papers, um, and he was a fantastic lawyer. There's an amazing book that's just about John Jay's legal career. Um, and he's exactly how I described it. He's a solo practitioner, took everything that came in the door. He wrote contracts, he wrote wills, he brought lawsuits. He's got a handful of criminal cases. Like he's just an amazing person that brought all of this depth of experience to the court. And it's clear that that's what Washington wanted. He wanted the first chief justice of the Supreme Court to be the best of the best amongst lawyers, the best and the best amongst politicians, the best and the best amongst legal thinkers, like a person who had done all of these things to bring with them that experience to the court. I picked out a couple of uh, justices from other eras as examples of how their biographies have changed. You write about many, but here's here's a couple more. Joseph Bradley, when did he serve and why was he an interesting character? Yeah, so Joseph Bradley is a mid to late 19th century person. He's uh, one of another one of the uh, justices who came from just absolute poverty. He's a subsistence farmer in rural New York, oldest of 12 children. Um, he's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant kid, even though he's completely self-educated. He walks in the snow every Saturday night, sleeps in the library in Bern, New York, so he can wake up, read all night, and then read all day Sunday before he has to go back on Monday and start again helping on the farm with his dad. He, his dad won't, won't let him go at first. He has to spend two more years working at the farm before he can go off to college um, because his dad just can't, physically can't afford him. His brothers have to get old enough to help. When he does go to college, uh, he's a Dutch Reformed church minister who gets him a scholarship to go to Rutgers, which is a Dutch Reformed university at the time. He finishes a four-year program in three years, dual major of um, math and law. He's the best math student there along with that. Then he just reads the law. He doesn't go to law school. And then he becomes a railroad lawyer. And he becomes a railroad lawyer right at the beginning of the boom in railroads. And as you can imagine, super lucrative work and amazingly interesting work. And he's actually like an early version of a specialist corporate lawyer. Um, He argues six different railroad cases before the United States Supreme Court. But on top of all of this, He gets really interested in actuarial science. I told you that he was a math major. So he's like, oh, this this life insurance is very interesting. So interested that he becomes a full-time actuarial, along with being America's most decorated railroad lawyer at what becomes prudential life. Um, And he must have been what, I mean, it's not like the history of the actuarial trade is actually a little bit fuzzy, but he's got to be one of the first, you know, 50 to 100 people to ever hold that job on top of being a world-class lawyer. It's just an amazing person. From a more modern era, Kennedy appointed Byron White to the court. And I'm wondering how you singled him out as an example of diverse backgrounds, because he graduated from Yale, one of the top schools that has a pipeline, and clerked for a justice before his appointment. So how did he fit? Oh, your- yeah, and he was, a, he was a Rhodes Scholar, too. Um, so uh, he grew up also super destitute in Colorado. Um, in a small farming community. And at the time when he was growing up, if you finished first in your class in high school, you got an academic scholarship to the University of Colorado at Boulder. So he just worked and worked and made sure that he was first in his class. So he did not go to college on an athletic scholarship. He went on an academic scholarship. And in fact, when he got to Colorado, he did not play as a freshman at football. And then he barely played as a sophomore. 
As a junior, he was one of the top running backs in the country. And as a senior, he finished second in the Heisman race. He led Colorado to the Cotton Bowl, which was then basically the national championship, and they finished runner-up. He was the quarterback in the single wing. He was the punter. He was the safety. He was the field goal kicker, and he was the punt returner. And he scored in that game on an interception return and on a punt return and as a running back, and they lost in a squeaker. And then six months later, he led the basketball team to the NIT tournament, and he, they were the Colorado was the runner-up in the basketball championship as well. All of this while earning a Rhodes Scholarship. He does his Rhodes Scholarship and the first two years of Yale Law School while he's a professional running back, and he led the NFL in rushing two different seasons while he was doing all of this. Then he dropped all of it, including Yale Law School, to join the Navy in World War II. And then he was um, the person who wrote the report on the PT-109 story for John J.F. Kennedy. He comes back, graduates Yale Law School, clerks. But then he heads back to Colorado, and he's just a, a, a basically an anonymous lawyer. I mean, he's a very successful, but he's just a relatively unknown lawyer in Colorado until JFK taps him. He's the only justice, I think, that was more famous when he was 21 than when he was 61. Like, it's just amazing all of the different variety of things that he accomplished before he got onto the court. And it's actually funny. He's a, he's a, I, I pair him with Thurgood Marshall, who was appointed to the court really in the same time frame as Byron White in the following way. And, and, and Warren's like this, too. These are people who were giants who would establish themselves as great before they ever got onto the court. These are people who brought that with them to the court. Um, there's a great bit story in the book where Sandy Levinson, who's a professor at Texas, calls it the hit by the bus test, which is if the justice had been hit by a bus just the day before they had been appointed, would there have been a biography written about them? Um, and that was really true of previous justices. These are former senators, former president of the United States, uh, former NFL running backs, like people who had really, really, really done a lot. And I'm sad to report that that's just not the case of the folks who are on the court right now. Uh, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is an example of a person who, who would have definitely been biography worthy. Um, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, I think, would have been biography worthy. Um, Justice Thomas, just based on his incredible life story, probably. And this is no shade, Sotomayor, also to the other folks. But I mean, honestly, most of their work has been sort of gearing up to get on the court. And then insofar as there would be a biography, now it's based on that, less than on their life, um, life beforehand. We found a clip in our video library from 1988 of Thurgood Marshall uh, talking about uh, his life before the court. Uh, it's a short one. I want to play it. They always used to say what a great lawyer that Thurgood Marshall was, but Wiley hit the nail on the head. I would go down there and I'd be a big shot, and I'd tell them all. And as soon as I finished telling them all, guess what I'd do? Guess the fastest thing out of it. Great clip, isn't it? Yeah. Um, oh, that makes me super happy. He's the greatest. He's, I mean, uh, he's, he's a super famous lawyer, but also just a self-described raconteur, just like the world's greatest storyteller. Amazing. 
But you referenced uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and like Thurgood Marshall, both of them were activists and their section of society before their appointments. This is a speculative question, but would their nominations be considered today, considering the, the way the nomination process works? Oh, Marshall would be a lot harder. I mean, um, because you know, he didn't go to Yale or Harvard. He went to famously went to Howard. Um, and, uh, and he, and, and, and Lincoln University in, in Pennsylvania. And he is the self-described hellraiser, um, before he, before he sort of turned the corner in law school and then became a more serious person. Um, so I think he would, he would have had a hard time. He definitely doesn't meet the educational background. Um, and also he just would have been a lot more controversial. Um, I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg would be controversial as well because they took, they took stands along the way before they got there. Um, the current route to the court really, really, really encourages, keeping your head down and working hard um, and just like a, like a silent version of jumping through all of these ever narrowing hoops. And again, that's, I don't think that that's helpful. You referenced how the presidents used to appoint politicians, and we pulled these numbers from your book because they really are quite telling. Uh, I hope the audience will bear with me while I read the list. Before 1980, 14 U.S. senators, 17 House members, five Continental Congress members, one president, or two in your telling, uh, 10 governors, five mayors, and 40 state legislators. Yet Sandra Day O'Connor in 1981 was the last appointee with political experience. Why the big change? Yeah, so I think that this is, again, a background situation. Uh, it's a divided court, and public opinion on it is divided. And people think that the court is already too political, so adding a politician, they think, would, would make it worse. I just disagree. Um, the court was not seen as more political when it actually had politicians on it. Um, and politicians bring a very, very, very valuable set of skills to the court. Uh, first, they've just, like, take a, polit a senator versus a person who spent their time as a federal court of appeals judge. A federal court of appeals judge, and this is for obvious reasons, you don't want them to be biased, but they never leave their office. Uh, the only people that they see are their clerks and their secretaries, and then once a month they hear argument and the lawyers stand at a distance from them. They never see any trials, they never see any regular people. A politician is out every day, door to door, working with people, getting to know people, understanding the needs, or at least trying to understand the needs of regular people. Second, a big chunk of the court's work is overseeing the political branches. And wouldn't it be helpful for them to know how those branches work, like to have some better idea of how they all operate? And then third, and I, I talk at length about Warren in the book because he was just the master at this. But honestly, uh, Chief Justice John Marshall was the master at this as well. He was another former politician. Sometimes politicians are good at getting people to agree or at least compromise. Um, and that may not be the case in the current version of politics that we had, but over the history of this uh, country, that's been one of the skill sets that they brought to the Supreme Court. And again, that's a skill set that's just sorely lacking. I have two more clips that uh, illustrate two of these people we've just talked about. Sandra Day O'Connor, this is from 2015, and she talks about the importance of working in the Arizona legislature before coming to the court. I enjoyed very much my experience here in Arizona in the legislature because you can see the problems and try to develop some solutions to some of those problems. Went through every statute we had and tried <laughs> to take out gender discrimination provisions and introduce something to do that. It was a good thing to do, and I think every state had to go through the same process, really. Yeah. But I was happy to kick Arizona's out in the open and get it going. <laughs> ben Barton, reaction? 
Oh yeah. She's just one of my favorites. Um, and she's a perfect example of that. She just has a really, she was a, basically a, a solo practitioner. She had a, a storefront legal practice where she took whatever came in the door. Um, she was an elected official. Uh, she, I think she was the Republican leader of the Senate. Um, so she rose really high in that regard. And then she was a state court judge and she brought all of that diverse experience to the court um, and just brought a lot of, of richness of experience and wisdom to the court for sure. Chief Justice Earl Warren, uh, and uh, we're going to play a clip with him reflecting on Brown versus Board from uh, 1969. And then I want to talk to you about reaching unanimity in that decision. When, when the American people as a whole recognize that, uh, that we have in the past been wrong in depriving certain minorities of their constitutional rights, and when we make the decision to see that they will in the future have these rights, then I think uh, we're on the way to solving uh, most of our domestic problems. And for him, it was important that Brown v. Board be a unanimous decision. Uh, uh, it seems, in though reading the history books, a bit of a heavy lift given the, the time and the culture of the society. So uh, reference his political skills and his ability to get to a, a, a unanimous decision in this case. And why it was important. Yeah. yeah. So I, I just absolutely, this story is, is gripping and I tell the short version of the story in the book, um, but the, the long version of the story is well worth reading as well. So the Supreme Court that Warren took over was a bitterly, bitterly divided Supreme Court. And it was weirdly not divided politically. Um, most of the justices had been appointed by FDR or Truman. So they were all should have been um, basically on the same page. Uh, and yet FDR had made a decision to appoint a lot of uh, former law professors as the law professor. This is, I'm, I'm making fun of my own group, but it's a tough, it's a tough row. Uh, he basically turns court hearings, you know, court meetings into faculty meetings. And that's just a very negative space for sure. So they were bitterly divided, had a really hard time coming to any conclusions. And the first time that they argued Brown versus Board of Ed, it looked like they might not even get to a majority. They might have a different concurrences and just have it be all divided. Then Chief Justice Vincent passes away. Warren takes over. And Warren was a controversial pick. He's a former politician. Um, and in fact, he was considered not to be a very bright person. But there's actual current writings about him in the press as describing him as not likely to set the world on fire. Um, and so he, he came in, he's super understated, and I would encourage anybody watching this who's interested in it, if you haven't done it already, just go read the de decision in Brown versus Board of Ed. It's this beautiful, short, simple, plain statement of fact where uh, there certainly were people who disagreed, um, but at least it was clear what they were trying to say. It's not packed with technical legal reasoning. It's not dragging you through the history of everything. It says, this is what America's about. This is what this case is about. This is our decision. And that's it. And it was a brilliant, brilliant way to write the case. It was a brilliant way to bring everybody else on board. And he took his time with it, too. He went door to door very politically um, with each member of the court and just tried to get them on board. But again, super gently. He wasn't intellectual about it. He didn't browbeat them. And this is by mutual report. This is what Warren said and what the justices in the court said. Um, and he was able to have a unanimous court come to that decision, which is if it's not the greatest decision in the Supreme Court's history, it's on the very, very short list. 
In the chapter about Earl Warren, it's titled phronesis. What does that word mean? Yeah, so phronesis is practical wisdom, and it's an Aristotelian concept. Um, but the less, less fancy word version of it is just common sense. Um, and I, I bring Aristotle into it because I want people to sort of think about the connection between life experience and then wisdom and common sense. And Aristotle's very, very clear about it. He makes a crisp distinction between what he describes as mere cleverness and practical wisdom. And I just love that phrasing of it. And I'll just be frank, I think the Supreme Court is packed with mere cleverness. And I mean that bipartisan and with all due respect to their many accomplishments, many of which, I, most of which I could never match. Um, but uh, practical wisdom comes from lived experience, doing lots of different things with lots of different people. Um, and I just think this collection of justices uh, is less likely to have that than previous collections of we have, justices. We have about 10 minutes left in our conversation. Returning to some of the attributes of diversity that you measured, Earl Warren, Sandra Day O'Connor were both of the West, Arizona, California. When you looked at geographic diversity, what did you find in your study? Yeah, so geographic diversity has definitely gone down. Um, and part of that is by design. So as I said, Washington was very, very, very interested in geographic diversity. And the actual seats on the Supreme Court would be linked to a circuit because they had to ride circuit there. And so the people would come from there. So you had natural diversity just because you like. So, for example, if you had a circuit that had Tennessee, Kentucky and Ohio in it, you've chose a justice from there to replace the last justice from there. So for a long time, that was how the court ran. And when you got rid of circuit riding, then that became less of a requirement and more sort of a general norm. And then even that norm faded. And the thing that's really noticeable about the justices is where they've spent their time as adults, more so than where they've grown up. And this group of justices, and when Jackson joins it, it'll continue this trend, has spent more time living in Washington, D.C. than any previous group of justices. And the reason why is this sort of common career path of the, this very hyper-elite version of meritocracy. After they clerk on the Supreme Court, they stay in town. They work at a big law firm. They work in the White House Counsel's Office. They work for the Senate. Um, there's, it's actually a great study in what this type of lawyer does over the course of their careers. Um, but it does tend to cluster geographically around Washington, D.C., and then especially geographically around the Acela Corridor. Basically, you start at Harvard in Boston and go down to D.C., you're going to capture years and years and years of life experience for these folks. Religious diversity was a pretty interesting topic to read about uh, because as you report that for much of the court's tenure, the justices were all Episcopalians, more or less. And it yep. was controversial when the first Catholic was appointed, when the first Jewish yep. justice was appointed. That it trend was controversial is, when the first Quaker was appointed. Like, I mean, like all of that has been controversial along the, along the way. But the recent court has been all Catholic, all Jewish. So uh, how did that migration happen, do you think? Yeah, so the, the Jewish one is actually a little bit harder to answer. The Catholic one is easier to answer, in, in my opinion. Um, the Catholic one is partially because, um, for, and this is a, I'm not stating uh, this is a political fact, is that Republicans really, really, really wanted to appoint people who were, who were strongly anti-abortion. And so those folks often tended to be Catholic. So there's a sort of that litmus test on the Republican side meant that the bulk of the Republicans being appointed were going to end up being Catholic. Now, Gorsuch is an Episcopalian. Um, and I, th I think Judge Jackson is uh, some 
she identifies so as, as Christian, uh, but, uh, yeah, and, but, not and, but not Catholic. Yes, exactly. Okay. So adding a bit more diversity in, in most. Yeah, for sure. She and Gorsuch would add some diversity to it because for a stretch, we had only only Jewish people and Catholics. And that was very unusual. I mean, first of all, it was unusual because there used to be exceptions and to have them drift to become the rule. Um, it's, it's just, I don't know, somewhat interesting. Um, but also it, it was unusual to have so little diversity. So Jackson would help in that regard for sure. While we're talking about Jewish justices, you write a bit about Louis Brandeis. Um, oh, one of my favorites. I love Brandeis. Uh, so Brandeis is another person who would have a really, really hard time making out on the court today. Brandeis's number one qualification for getting on the court was that he was America's best lawyer. Like he graduated Harvard and then he went into practice and he just spent all his time building an amazing, spectacular, super wide ranging practice. And that's what he brought with him to the court. Uh, he hadn't been a former judge. Um, he hadn't done anything to, to demonstrate that sort of thing um, afterwards. And so that, that would be unusual on the court today. And second, he was a super controversial pick at the time. He was controversial because he was Jewish, but he was also controversial because he had written at length against big corporations. Um, and that was part of the reason why he was tabbed to be on, on the court. And it was a brutal knockdown, drag out, and, and frankly, quite anti-Semitic confirmation process, but he made it through. And I actually think of Brandeis as an example that current presidents should think about. Um, so they think that by choosing people from the same background, they're going to have an easier time in the confirmation process. Well, well, was that true for Merrick Garland? Was that true for Brett Kavanaugh? Like, I don't think that that's actually turned out to be true. The process is going to be super divisive and it's kind of broken. So why not roll the dice and take the chances? And that's definitely what they did with Brandeis. They knew it was going to be brutal. They knew they might fail, but they were there to make a point. They're like, this is the best guy in America for this seat. And we're going to put him up whether you guys like it or not. Let's have a full argument about it. And they did. And then eventually made it on the court. And of course, he's one of the greatest justices of all time. C-SPAN recently did a public opinion survey on attitudes about the court and on two questions relative to the topic we've been talking about. Forty seven percent of the respondents said gender and ethnicity, very important, and another 22 on top of that. So we're we're close to 69 percent saying gender, ethnicity on the court, uh, adding diversity is important to them. And uh, 59% said that the Supreme Court would be better off with more law school diversity. So you've got some public opinion behind you as you do this. What do lawyers say when you present to them? Uh, so it depends on the group of lawyers. You can imagine, I mean, law professors are a pretty elite group. And so when, I'm, when I say that we should have a mix of people, not all of whom look exactly like the people in this room, there is some light groaning <laughs> from law professors. Um, and then, but in, in, in lawyers, you know, I'll give this, this group, of, this talk to, to uh, groups of judges or to bar associations, and you get a mix of reactions to it, for sure. As you can imagine, um, I, and also I've given this talk at a Rotary Club in Knoxville, Tennessee. Well, those folks are like, yeah, that seems to make a lot of sense to me. So it's, some of it depends on the audience. So your prescription is, and it's a chapter title, let, let's make the court weird again. What, what's your definition of weird? Weird is just like, you know, keep Austin weird. Basically, it just means let's get, let's get people from a diversity of backgrounds and people who have done various different things um, to to establish their merit, to establish their greatness. Um, and in that, that chapter, we cover some of the many entrepreneurs who have made it onto the court. Um, but you just used to have uh, uh, people who you looked at their background and you're like, wow, that that's amazing. I can't believe that this person did all of those things before they ever got on the court. And again, let me just be clear. 
the people who are currently on the Supreme Court, it is amazing that they've been able to accomplish what they've been able to accomplish. I, I can't do it, like this very, very, very narrow, hard group of hoops. Um, that being said, there's no variety in it. You know, it's like it's missing that 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 flavor that we used to have. Um, and I think maybe this is just par partially American meritocracy generally now. But we just used to have this sort of like much bigger tent. You could establish merit. At, like if if um, meritocracy means you have to go to a Ivy League undergraduate institution, ninth grade algebra really matters. Like this path starts so early. If meritocracy means you've done something to prove that you're an exceptional person, you got a whole lifetime to do that. You can do that as a lawyer. You can do that as a politician. You can do that as a state court judge. There's just a lot of different, more routes to the court. Last question for you. You write in the book that this is actually, this project has actually been a love letter to the court. What is it about the Supreme Court that evokes that response in you? Um, so the, the of the various parts of the American constitutional sort of project, Supreme Court is the most unique, in my opinion. It's the weirdest thing that we did, and then how it's actually developed over time has been even weirder. And it's a shining beacon to the world that we do this. Um, and then to just look at all of these amazing people and the lives that they've lived before they ever got on the court, many of whom are now forgotten, um, was just a joy to me. And it, it's such a great reflection, in my opinion, on the country as a whole, like that you would have all of these different people who would accomplish all of these different things, make it onto the court. The great, like the life's rich pageant of it all, the different things that they did, uh, it just was just a blessing for me. Just I really enjoyed it. Benjamin Barton's latest book is called The Credentialed Court, Inside the Cloistered Elite World of American Justice. Thanks so much for spending an hour with C-SPAN. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 